Welcome to the Runway VC Podcast, a podcast where we talk with experts and disruptors about how they're influencing the future of aviation and travel. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This is your captain speaking. We are currently at a Welcome to another episode of the Runway VC Podcast. I'm Chris Groh, and on this episode, we're talking with Carrie Frank, the founder and CEO of Comply365, a software company responsible for really bringing airlines into the mobile age. Uh, during this conversation, we actually had a great talk with Carrie about what it's like to start a company in the aviation industry and how she did it without really any aviation or even technical background. We also talk about the journey she took with her family throughout starting the company and how they dealt with the struggles and then celebrated the successes together. We talk about how she turned her small business that she started with only a handful of people into a company that now works with 70% of the airlines in North America and really why you can thank her for being able to listen to this podcast during takeoff. At the end, we wrap up our conversation talking about how Carrie sees the industry moving forward into using more wearable technology and how airports need to start moving forward towards using a more centralized management system. So without further ado, here's the conversation with Carrie. Hey, Carrie. How's it going? Great. Nice to talk to you, Chris. Yeah, glad to have you on the podcast. Um, So tell me a little bit about Comply365. Well, we're a really innovative, mobile-first company that started a long time ago in 2007, and we were one of the lead innovators around electronic flight bag for the airlines, and that's really how we started in this mobile-first world that we're all kind of entering today, the digital transformation, they call it. Okay, so that's quite a few buzzwords (laughs) thrown into that. (laughs) Um, When you talk about mobile-first, is this phones or tablets and and kind of where did the idea come from? Sure. Well, I think, um, you know, I'll start with kind of where the idea came from. I was working in airlines and just really saw just this core problem that existed across every department within an airline where they had mobile and global users, a community base that are non-traditional, non-desk employees. They're never going to come into corporate headquarters and sit in meetings, right? Um, And they had a lot of problems around distributing content and tracking compliance or tracking that people even had the ability to read it or get it, revision control. And this seemed to be a core thing across every single department. And so all I did to get the idea was really listen to customers and hear what problems they were telling me. And I kind of tied this thread like, hey, this is a core problem across this entire aviation ecosystem, and what can I do to solve it? And um, so we solved it, and um, we came up with a platform that allows this distribution of content. And um, it's around tablets in the early days, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. we all went to going to tablets, and today, um, mobile is that. It's some tablets, it's some phones. We're even moving into wearables and things like that. But it's about that end user that's a non-desk sitter that we still need to connect with on a daily basis. And so each one of them might have a different set of what device is right for them. 
Yeah, and and you and I have talked previously about kind of your uh, journey and and how you've talked to your customers before they were even your customers. Uh, I, I definitely want to touch on that story in a little bit. But first, did you kind of grow up in the aviation industry? How did you, where did you come from in terms of, of uh, your background? Were you always kind of an entrepreneur? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, actually, I had no aviation experience and on top of it, no uh technical background experience. Um, I basically graduated from high school and uh, just became an entrepreneur and kind of on this journey to figure out what could I do to impact the world was really my mission. And um, so I've been this entrepreneur on this crazy path, starting companies and trying to figure out what was my big idea. And it actually was my husband, dude, um, and he came home and he worked in IT at an airline and he said, listen, you know, Carrie, if you could go into aviation, you would have so much fun. There's such a relational community um, and their processes are need of innovation. And that's really how I got into aviation. And I'm so glad he did that because I've fallen in love with the industry, the people, and, um, you know, it's it's like my home. It's like what I've always been destined to do. Mm-hmm. Now, and so you just skipped right over college and, and jumped into the working force. Was that a, a personal decision that you just didn't see college as a route for you, or uh, was there something bigger and better uh, calling you elsewhere? Yeah, it's kind of a like a crazy uh, mix of a lot of different things. I was at a time in my life, my I'd moved a lot in my life. I'd been in 11 schools in 11 years. Uh, wow. And, um, and, you know, I grew up with, um, you know, not a lot of money. Um, so I, I, the one thing that I could grab onto was working. I loved working. It gave me stability, gave me purpose. Um, and it gave me all these things. And school at the time was just annoyance to me because I <laughs> had so much to do, you know. Like I was right. like, I don't have time for this. I have so much to do. So I actually even tested out of school a year early. So um, oh, I think wow. it was just a combination of all those things of saying like, hey, I've got a, I've got something to do. And I don't know how to explain it other than that. It's just this weird drive inside of me that was always like, I've got to figure this out. I've got something special I'm supposed to do. And so I just entered the workforce and worked in a lot of industries and always got promoted and I would start promote me up into the higher management things and I would quit because I knew (laughs) I had a destiny to be some kind of entrepreneur and I didn't want to climb a corporate ladder. So it was this weird like twist and turns and I'm so grateful for that part of my journey because it taught me so many lessons that when I started Comply 365, I can look back at different points in my journey and say, wow, if I hadn't done that job, I wouldn't have known this skill set or I hadn't known this. So I kind of did my master's in education in yeah. this weird path <laughs> where I got my uh, my MBA through, I just call it hard knocks and real life experience. Yeah, that's that's. I that can imagine just getting kicked in the teeth so many times that you learn the hard way through various experiences. Um, but let me ask you, in terms of starting businesses, because Comply365 isn't the only business you've started before, correct? Correct. So in terms of the businesses that you've started, um, coming up from a humble beginning, you said you mentioned that you didn't have a lot of money growing up. Do you think that 
kind of made you appreciate your success more, but also, I guess, made you fear failure less? Uh, you know, is it, if, if you didn't have anything to lose because you knew what that experience was like? Absolutely. Um, a couple things, right? I don't fear change. Like, I've moved over 30 times in my life. So change for me became like it's part of who I am and my regular occurrence. So um, I had like no no fear of change. Like a lot of people don't like change. But mm-hmm. for me, change it was actually comforting because that's all I knew was constant change. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also grew up, you know, in poverty for, you know, stints of my life. And, um, and I also grew up as a missionary's kid for a couple years. My oh, parents wow. were abroad. So, I mean, we were working in refugee camps and, um, you know, my parents didn't have enough money to buy us milk uh, at this time in our life. And um, when we came back from those couple years, I just had this deep appreciation for the freedom that I had as being an American mm-hmm. and the ability that I had to set my own destiny. I didn't, I wasn't confined to a refugee camp and I wasn't confined to those rules. And that brought me such a deep appreciation for what America stands for that when I came back, I really rolled up into this drive and ambition and fear of failure for me um, was right. I I grew up in poverty, so um, like fear of losing everything for me, I already knew what not having things was like. So I was willing to risk it because I have the freedom to risk it. I have the freedom to build a a dream business and change the world where I know so many people don't have those freedoms. Yeah, I can imagine that, um, you know, seeing people without the same opportunities uh, that you have coming back and, and coming back and appreciating those opportunities would make you drive harder to to achieve success. Absolutely. Yep. It is just, it just changes your whole perspective on life. So you mentioned that you were your husband helped you start Comply 365. Were, was it just you and your husband when you started the company, or had you already had started your family at that point? No, we had a family. So we had three young kids at the point, and um, I really like told my husband, like, I have to figure out the thing I'm destined to do because our kids are getting a little older, and um, you know, if I fail now. I can still recover before they're in college and mm-hmm. it won't impact their lives. If I wait too long, you know, it could impact my kids' lives in the future. So it was really, uh, I mean, I, you know, I had little kids. Uh, my youngest one was two at the time we started the company. Oh, wow. Um, so she was pretty little. And then my son was like nine and I think my daughter was 10 or 11. So um, I got my family involved because I noticed a lot of executives or entrepreneurs um, you know, to really give the time to being an entrepreneur, it's like birthing a baby all over again, and they take a ton of attention. And I didn't want jealousy, and I didn't want my kids to resent the work that I was doing, and I've mm-hmm. seen that with a lot of families. It's hard to do this work, balance, you know, life thing that everybody talks about. But I took an approach where I included my kids, and so, like, literally – we sat down in my living room and I told my kids that I was going to start a company and they all said, yeah, okay, because I've started so many. <laughs> sure, Mom. Right. Um, and I just said, this one's different. I'm going to risk it all. I'd lose everything. I know this is my future. I know this is my destiny. 
but I won't lose my kids and I won't lose my marriage. So we have to vote. And if we're starting this, that everybody is all in. And we voted and we had a unanimous family vote. And um, my kids stayed involved with the business. You know, even today they, you know, they do different things and attend our conferences. And it's been a wonderful journey because my kids love this company. They love what we're doing and they've fallen in love with the uh, being entrepreneurs themselves and figuring out how, you know, you can put your mind to something and accomplish it. So it's not just a business. It's it's more of a a part of the family, right? Yeah. I I, I mean, I, I look at it and people are like, how do you travel that much and keep in touch with your kids? And how do you raise such great kids? Because I have great kids. They will tell you that. I have awesome kids. Um, and I just said it's because we do it all together, right? When I'm traveling and when I walk in the door, my kids are standing there saying, how did the meetings go? Did you get a new contract? And, you know, how did the deployment at that client go? You know, we want to know. So um, because we can sit around the dinner table and talk about these types of things, we're all doing it together and they're in it as much as me. So it's become like, um, you know, their their baby just as much as mine. That's great. That's awesome. How did that conversation sitting down with uh, your oldest, which was 11, correct? Yep. And and and, and your nine-year-old, and then I, I would imagine the two, your, your youngest probably had a, <laughs> a little bit uh, different understanding. But how do you convey to an 11-year-old and a nine-year-old that, you know, mom's going to start her own business? How does that conversation go? Yeah, it was actually really interesting. I just sat down and I told them, you know, I've been thinking since I was a kid that I needed to change our family's legacy. You know, I grew up without a lot, but I'm appreciative for everything I had. But I don't want my kids to have to go through that or your kids. So we have an opportunity because we live in America. We have an opportunity that we can take a risk and start a company and I could lose everything, right? We could lose our house. We could lose our cars. We could lose everything. But if we ended up in a one-bedroom apartment with a family of five, I could, we could still survive just fine. And we could be happy that we actually took a risk. And I said, your friends that live down the street, um, they don't have, you know, their parents are maybe looking at those same opportunities that we are. So they'll live in the same house you know, for the rest of their life and they're going to do the same things and then those kids are going to get jobs. And what I'm talking to you kids about is what if we took a risk and what if that risk paid off? We could change our lives for the future for generations to come. And that got their eyes really big, you know. <laughs> and um, and I said, it's a risk, right, because we could end up in a one-bedroom apartment, but what would we, you know, what is there to really lose as long as we have each other um, and what if we could change our legacy for the rest of our generations? And that's what got them really excited. They said, we want, we want to take the risk, Mom. We want to change our legacy. That's, and that speaks a lot about your kids just being able to grasp those concepts at such a young age. Mm -hmm. um, are you now teaching them? Uh, you mentioned they're getting the entrepreneur bug. Are they now? Do you, are they coming to you with ideas for their own businesses? Oh, yeah. And I mean, I just say some days to my husband, what did I do to us? <laughs> it's like a great thing. But some days, like literally my youngest daughter has like so many business ideas that I, I swear one time when I travel abroad, I'm going to come home to a fully launched business because I've had some pretty close calls on some pretty crazy ideas from her. 
um, of uh, businesses that she's going to launch. And um, so she, I know, she's had over a dozen company ideas that she wants to launch. Um, my oldest daughter, um, she, when we moved into our corporate headquarters uh, about four years ago, came to me and negotiated that she would do the cleaning for the company instead of the company that the building uses. And I said, that you can't have that job. It's not a job. It's not open. And she started negotiating with me on the spot and said, I want the business. So I said, well, I'll fire you. You're not going to ever work, you know, and call in, you know, because you don't want to go clean because right. you have a right. basketball game. She said, go ahead, fire me if I don't do my job. I'm fine. You know, and I said, well, I'll never hear it's like the boss's kid, you know, uh, mm-hmm. thing. So she's been running that business for four years. She's in college now, and she subcontracts all the labor out to uh, her brother and her brother's friends, and she still makes money. <laughs> so awesome. she is definitely an entrepreneur. So, yeah. Um, yeah, they all have skills that they have learned on this journey that have made them become incredible individuals and just, you know, hearing their problem-solving skills and their persistence and and everything, I can just hear myself in them when I'm hearing about what they're doing at school or how they've negotiated this, and it's because they've been a part of this journey. So it's it's pretty incredible, and I think people can include their kids in their life, whether they're an entrepreneur or you just work at a company. You know, it's just changing your mindset and, you know, explaining to kids how you make a difference and why yeah. you're passionate about making a difference. Absolutely, absolutely. So it's not your typical lemonade stands that your kids are starting, <laughs> it sounds like. No, no, no. I wish it was the typical lemonade stands because I am telling you, like, uh, my daughter's ideas are pretty pretty cool out there ideas. But uh, I'm like, wow, um, yeah, so she, she knows all these, you know, things about, well, I've got my seed funding, I've got my savings, I've got oh, this, no. and I'm like, <laughs> oh, my gosh, she has, like, all the tools to, to launch a business. So wait, um, it's not your typical lemonade stand. Wait till she starts carrying around NDAs and making people sign them. <laughs> oh, no, she's already talked about that, and she's wow, talked that. about business partners, and, yes, I know, she's way above that. She has org charts and everything created. I'm like, oh, my gosh, you're 10. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> so when you and your when your when you and your husband first kind of came up with the idea for uh, Comply 365, what were you doing at the time? Were you start, were you running one of your other businesses, or were you working full time somewhere else? Um, I was doing two things at the time. I was uh, I was working full time for a non for profit, and I was running a full time consulting business on the side, um, which uh, was one of my businesses where I was going into big companies and doing, um, looking at their processes and um, helping them drive efficiencies and change within their companies. And my husband worked in an airline at the time, and really I came home from consulting one day and I said, this is not the business that's going to scale and change the world. I'm going to have to shut down my consulting business And my husband was like, are you kidding me? We're making really good money. (laughs) And I was like, yes, but it doesn't accomplish what I have to do. I have to have an impact somehow, and that's not going to have an impact. And he know he's awesome. He's such a great supporter. And he just said, you're right, Carrie. You've talked about this your whole life, so shut it down. I'll support you in what's next. Don't worry about that. That's awesome. So was it a close the business down one day and then file the – paperwork for Comply365, or was it a a transition for you, and how did that go? 
It was pretty fast. I mean, when my husband told me about getting into aviation and then inventing software, I mean, from the time we had the conversation to the time I think we we filed the paperwork was like three months. It was oh, wow. fast. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, so it was pretty fast. I was anxious to get going. I'm I'm never a slow mover on anything. So yeah, I was anxious to get going, and we just started by consulting in uh, airlines and helping them, you know, with their core um, problems on their software in the early days until we found like this niche area that we could solve a problem and we could innovate a new solution. And that's why I just listened and uh, was observant. You know, for the first couple of years of our company, we just did consulting, and I was listening and looking for this key thing. And and I will tell you, I have the most incredible clients in the world because we keep innovating together today. So, you know, now we have this whole product line that's mobile first, and um, it's all because they keep innovating with me, and I just keep listening. So, it's a beautiful way to really build a great partnership and a great company. So you just kind of, in the beginning of, of the company, you really just took the um, consulting company that you had just closed down and those skill sets and moved them into the airline industry? Is that kind of, was that kind of yep. your transition? That's actually, yep, that is a good way. Yeah, that's, and that, I think, is a good lesson for a lot of people that, have, that are worried about, you know, when they start their own business, they have to start from scratch. Um, and they have to come, or, you know, they have to come up with a, a new idea that no one's ever done before. Um, and, and your proof that, you know, you can just take your existing set of skills, move them into a new industry, uh, and then over time, the new product will, will find you. And, and you just kind of sat back and waited uh, for, your, for your opportunity to change the industry. Is that kind yeah. of the path? You, that, did you know you were doing that from the beginning? Was that the game plan all along? Yeah, it was the game plan all along because um, I knew – um, I didn't know aviation. I knew I was not a technology expert. So I had to learn those things. I mean, um, you know, for people like me, when you, you know, don't have those backgrounds immediately, I literally put myself through like this crazy amount of learning and skill sets. And I was taking notes everywhere, researching at night, learning the acronyms of the industry, learning the core problems. And, and just asking questions of those people that probably people had never asked them because I think the magic of me coming into the aviation industry was that things that people had been doing for 30 years that nobody questioned, I questioned mm -hmm. because I wasn't from the industry. So, you know, they always say take someone from the outside looking in. Right. I think that was the part of the magic of me, like just saying, why do you do a revision process for a flight ops manual that way? And they're like, what do you mean, why? This is just the way we've been doing it for 30 years. And I'm like, yes, but, you know, you've got too many backwards steps. We could eliminate half of those steps. And they just looked at me and said, what? Like, you know, nobody had questioned why we had been doing things the same way for 30 years. And here I was walking in every department, questioning everything and going, that's a problem. They're like, that's not a problem. That's just the way we work. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, but I could make you five times more efficient if, I, if we did this. So it was really awesome to, you know, work with um, all these different people and have them just tell me what their roles were and then innovate ways to make them more productive, more efficient. And then um, when the tablets came on the market, I just was like, oh, this is exactly what I wanted to do. And so when we developed our first mobile app for the electronic flight bag, 
um, I knew from those early days of finding that core problem with all the different departments that I would bring mobility to that entire enterprise, not just the pilots. That we, we went after the flight ops group right away and got the EFB, but we now are moving into you know, flight attendants, maintenance, uh, airport services, ground, gate agents. They're all using mobile devices with our software. And now, for for those who for those listeners who may not be familiar, the electronic flight bag. Can you explain that a little bit and what that process yeah. looked like before it was electronic? <laughs> yeah. So the um, most people will remember walking through an airport and seeing pilots that have these square black bags on top of like their luggage, and a lot of people assume that was more luggage, but honestly, that was filled with paper. And depending on the carrier, it could be as much as 60 pounds uh, of paper in the cockpit, um, and half of it was their flight manuals, policies, procedures, and half of it was charting. And so um, the revision process um, back in, like, 2007 was that depending on the carrier, they actually um, have revisions to the manual, so the operating manual of, you know, the, the plane they're flying, they would mail them to their homes, or mail them to a crew base, and you might get an envelope with 50 pages, and then you had instructions that you had to rip out, you know, page number 23 and replace it with this page number 23, and you had to go through and do all of this, and then a lot of them had compliance requirements that had a read and sign that you had to mail back to corporate headquarters for them to put in an Excel spreadsheet. So um, it's crazy, and pilots would just, like, insert these. You know, they're traveling the world, right? So they would just sometimes put them in the front of their book because they hadn't had time to replace them. But, you know, the FAA does not allow that. You know, they would walk into the cockpit, and they would do uh, checks on you to make sure you had the called a ramp check, that you were in compliance and you had inserted all the pages in the right places. So it was a nightmare to manage logistics of worldwide operators and finding those people and getting them their revisions was just absolute nightmare. And I was like, this is beautiful. I can automate this, and I can make this seamless and simple. Um, And so we've done that, and um, it's now iPads replace um, in the cockpit the 60 pounds of paper, um, and we put everything on a mobile app, and then they also have a mobile charting app. Oh, wow. So now, did you have, did the idea of automating all this or or digitalizing all of this come before the tablets came out, or was that kind of a, as soon as the tablets came out, you were able to connect the dots? I was working on um, already building a system in the cloud that handled the revision control process online and uh, required compliance about revision control because before a document goes out, there's an entire automated workflow that goes behind that. So I was already working on building that in the cloud. And then while we were kind of in the final, you know, uh, phase one of the product is when the first consumer mobile device hit the hit the industry, and that was the first one was the Kindle. And so when the when I was holding the Kindle, I connected the dots and said, if I can read a book on here, I can read a manual. Mm-hmm. And so that's really where we started, and we actually had to get the Kindles approved in 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 flight because at this point nobody had tested what would happen if you took 150 devices up in flight. Um, and there was a lot of concern that, you know, it would have uh, EMI, electronic magnetic yeah. interference, and, 
and all these things. So we actually had to do a test flight over government airspace with our app, with the Kindle. So Amazon was up there with us, and we were getting all of these things done. And a few months after that flight was when um, the the first iPad came out on the market. And at that point, you know, the UI, the full color, and all of that was was so great that you know, we immediately developed an iOS app, and now today we're device agnostic. That's awesome. Now, this is, like you said, 2008, 2007, 2008, so this was early in, in terms of technology. Um, yeah, in 2009 was when we started the cloud um, development, and that oh, okay. was early for cloud even. Yeah. I mean, uh, a lot of businesses thought cloud was um, risky and and everything, and we took a pretty big risk and said, no, we're going to go cloud early because we believe it's the future. Now, how did you get in touch with Amazon and, and the Kindle uh, and get on <laughs> to the Kindle? Uh, it's a crazy story. So if you're an entrepreneur, you should have a lot of these crazy stories in your right. um in your past, but we had we had reached out to Amazon through you know whatever we found on their website with no avail, no responses. And one day I was sitting at my desk and I just talked to my lead engineer and he said, if you don't get me to somebody in Amazon, your dream is not going to come true. And, you, you know, I was like, well, my dream is coming true, so I'm going to figure this out. <laughs> so um, I just uh, grabbed the phone and I dialed whatever the number was, 1-800-AMAZON, and a nice lady <laughs> answered the phone. And she said, um, how can I help you with your order? And I said, listen, I need you to listen to a really interesting story and I need you to strategically transfer me to the right person. And I told that story about 10 times and I kept getting transferred. And two hours later, I was talking to an executive VP at Amazon. Wow. And uh, the interesting thing that I didn't know and the reason I kept getting transferred was that um, Jeff Bezos at the time was uh, one of his key initiatives was to get the Kindle to be able to be left on in flight because consumers weren't going to buy his product to read their books on the plane um, because at this point, this is when devices right. were never allowed to be turned on. Um, so he had an initiative that he needed this as much as I needed this, so it worked out for us to kind of join forces to get the approvals for devices to be left on during flight. So are you the reason why I can now read my Kindle during takeoff? Is that are you the person that started that whole process? I think I should at least get a little credit. I'm not saying I'm fully responsible. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't received any, so like just a little bit would be kind of nice because I am telling you, it was so much hard work for so many years on what we did. But, yeah, I think there were a lot of people in the industry that – that we're pushing on a lot of buttons at the same time, and um, now they're all my friends, but at the time we didn't know each other, so we always talk. It was like this perfect storm. Everybody was working on these initiatives, and it made this all happen. So talk to me about the, time, the, the test flight that you were doing uh, with Amazon to prove to the FAA. Um, I can imagine that being kind of a nerve-wracking a few hours while you're in the air, uh, because if that Heck. goes wrong, I mean, that's, that's essentially make or break for the company, correct? It was, but listen, I everybody asked me this, and I will tell you, I was not nervous one ounce, and I absolutely had zero fear. Um, I was so confident 
that we would not have any issues, that he didn't even think twice about it. And I, and I look back today and think that's like so strange, but I, I just had this confidence um, and I had been telling, you know, the engineers, you know people forget to leave, turn their devices on in flight all the time. Right. So we would have been having issues uh, along the way if um, this would really cause issues. But, I mean, I was so confident that on this test flight, I had me, my husband, and our our chief technical officer all on the same flight, and um, <laughs> none of us even thought twice about what if this plane crashes, right? right. <laughs> Uh, we were all like so confident uh, that we were, you know, um, just excited. We couldn't wait for the day. We took tons of pictures. We documented. And um, I mean, even to make it even worse, uh, we were taking a flight on a plane that just came out of a heavy check. So after a heavy check is done, you know, there's a test flight. And so we were doing the test flight after a heavy check as well as the EMI testing. So it was pretty, like, in hindsight, it was like a lot of people are like, wow, that was really risky. But, you know, uh, when we landed, we were high-fiving, and, you know, we had zero interference. And, um, you know, we just thought this would be, like, the greatest day that we could announce it to the world. Um, but, you know, we were kind of cautioned to not announce it to the world. The FAA wanted to roll out some nice regulations on you know, how to communicate to passengers and consumers and train flight attendants. And so, you know, we thought that was the best thing for the industry. So we we kind of had to hold it all in for a while before, you know, the regulations came out, kind of making it safe for everyone to follow the same standard procedures. Yeah. And just to give our listeners kind of a context and that this was also in 2009, correct? I think the flight was, yeah, two, uh, late 2009, yeah. Okay, so we're still very early in mobile phones. The iPhone hadn't been out for that long. Um, the world of Blackberries was still running in corporate America. Yes. Uh, and the iPad was launched with some mixed reviews. I mean, I remember when the first one came out, the reviews were, well, why do I want a giant iPhone? Uh, so yeah. <laughs> it was, it was, yeah. So that's a, that it does. It's not that long ago, but in terms of where we are now and not having to, you know, not having to turn off your device during takeoff, uh, to where we were, you know, back then, um, that it's been, we've made leaps and bounds progress over the few short years. Uh, so fast. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're selling this, to the airline. So you've been approved by the FAA. Um, you can't tell anyone, but now you're going to sell this product, you know, on the iPad to the airlines. How does, what does that process look like? Were you able to seamlessly transition from the clients that you were consulting to this new technology platform or um, did they take even more convincing? How did that look? What did that look like? Yeah, I wish it was like a nice fairy tale where it was like super simple and I got to dance through the tulips now that we went through all the hard work, but it was just now the new mountain to climb because I thought everyone would be so excited to see this new technology. <laughs> and so I would go into these boardrooms and just say like, listen, you guys are going to be so excited. And, you know, they would just look at me in total shock, like how is any of this exciting? And I would say, because I'm going to save you millions of dollars and we're going to take fuel off and we're going to make you more efficient. And the, 
people were just not accustomed to that kind of change, and they were scared of it. I mean, they were just scared. So I was laughed out of, like, every boardroom in the early days where they said, Carrie, you need to come back in a decade. You are way too innovative. We can't handle this. We're a slow-to-change industry. We don't like change. We don't like risk. And um, so I just said, that's okay. I'll be ne- back next month, and I'll tell you what's new. You know, so, <laughs> so it's just persistence and perseverance that I just kept pushing and pushing. And, um, and then others in the industry, there were a few other leaders that were also pushing, uh, innovators within airlines, but I didn't know them yet. So, I mean, it was a really hard battle um, that we really fought for a couple years was just a resistance to change overall. But it was amazing that as we started to get the first client and then the second client, that that fear of change, um, you know, lessens. Oh, mm-hmm. if they could do it, maybe I can do it. And so um, after we got through those major, major hurdles, then um, our rate of acceleration, I mean, it really – you know, took off, no pen, pun intended there, but it really right. took <laughs> off for us. Uh, and we had, um, you know, kind of my goal was to hit fast and furious and um, kind of hit the tipping point where now it was kind of the standard and paper was no longer the standard. Um, and so we're in a, we love where we are today. We have 70% of North American market share Wow, That's in awesome. aviation. And we have just incredible innovative clients now that are doing more and more things to digitize their workplace and save more money. And so the journey just continues, right? It's um, mm-hmm. it's a big industry with lots of complicated things, and we keep looking for new ways to drive new efficiencies and innovations. When did you know you were going to succeed? When did When did you, was it after the first client? Like, when did you know that you had a real success? I knew um, in um, 2010 when I signed my first client that owned four airlines that I did it. I knew then, like, okay, this is a real deal, and I've really got something. That was I, I'll never forget that day, and I'll never forget that I fi- I, I'm like, finally, I did it. Um, now, there was still a ton of risk I had because I had to scale a company and build a company and I had sure. been bootstrapping a company and all of this, but I knew that it was for real now. It wasn't my imagination. It was something I could get people to sign off on and um, it was the future. Now, was that before that first client was signed, before you, you got your first customer, was there ever a thought that you weren't going to make it? Not for me. I think all the people in my life around me uh, whispered all the time. In fact, they tell me today about we, we were sure you weren't going to make it out of that month or that week. I mean, mm-hmm. there it was it was a tough journey. I mean, my family lived on $50 a week for about a year for a family of five people. Wow. Um, it, it was a tough, uh, a tough haul uh, for us. But um, I knew, like, the nice thing about you know, when you are resource constrained and I wasn't going to take venture money at this point because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't fooling myself and Mm -hmm. inventing something that I thought was great, but nobody would buy. And um, if it was my money and um, if I didn't eat or if I couldn't feed my kids, um, it would make me have to go back and think harder 
where I think if you just have excess money and you get venture money early, you can kind of fool yourself to say, oh, you know, it's a marketing issue or it's a sales issue or, you know, and maybe your product just isn't right. Um, So it made me really dig in deep and make sure that I had an incredible product and I couldn't glaze over anything because my kids literally didn't get new clothes if I didn't sign contracts. So that made me just dig in and I I wasn't going to fail because I'll do anything right for my family. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I never thought I would fail, um, but, you know, there's a lot of people around me that were shocked that I didn't. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. And, And I don't, I have a question about kind of the strain that that put on your family. I don't want to keep coming back to your family, but I am really interested in just kind of, I think there are a lot of people out there that say that, oh, I can't start a business or I can't try a new adventure because I have to provide for X, Y, and Z, or, you know, this this family member or these kids are uh, relying on me. So how does that type of living off of $50 a week, what, what conversations and, and what are the issues that your kids are having and, and the strain that that puts on the relationships that you have within your family? Hey, I, I deployed kind of two strategies. One, um, I never told my kids we were living on 50 bucks a week, um, so they didn't know how little money we mm-hmm. had. Um, I had grown up without a lot, and I remember the strain of sometimes thinking about, um, you know, having to stand in a food pantry line um, or having to stand in a line to get a winter coat. And I didn't want my kids to experience that. Mm-hmm. So like, I took my 50 bucks a week and I did some crazy stuff with it to trick my kids. So I would buy like macaroni and cheese, you know, and spend mm-hmm. like $3 on one meal. And I would buy like a roast or a piece of steak, you know, for another right. meal. Uh-huh. And, um, and so I would just say to them, I just love Kraft macaroni and cheese. It's like one of my favorite meals. And they were young, so they would say, oh, yeah, we love it too, you know. And so we would have these super, super cheap meals, and then um, I would throw in like one, you know, steak on clearance or something so they didn't mm-hmm. feel like we were eating nothing. Um, a lot of people ask me, why didn't you go on food stamps or any of that? And I say, because – I don't need the government's help. I, this, I was my choice to be an entrepreneur. I'm not right. in poverty because um, I can't provide. I've decided to be an entrepreneur and take my journey, so I'm going to do it. You know, I'm going to provide for my family. Um, so we did things like that, and my kids really didn't have a clue. But my husband and I spent a lot of time figuring out, like, hey, you know, our daughter has a basketball game. It's $5 to get in. Um, we can't come up with $10 to get in, so one of us is just going to have to go and we'll make an excuse why the other one can't, you know, Mm -hmm. and we just kind of did things so our kids didn't know. Now, when it got tricky was, uh, like, my daughter came in when she was about 13 and said, Mom, I need designer jeans. And I said, Oh, you do? And she said, Yeah, you bought me zero new clothes for school this year. And um, she said, all the kids in school have designer jeans. And I said, oh, since when does designer jeans define you as a cool kid versus not a cool kid? Mm-hmm. She's like, well, it doesn't, Mom. And I said, right, well, we don't believe that things define you, so go define yourself at school. And she said, but, Mom, you don't understand. I just don't fit in. I, I'm wearing your clothes to school. I want to wear clothes that are designer or at least kid clothes. And um, I just looked at her and I said, Kimmy, we voted. (laughs) 
Oh, we wow. voted a couple of years ago, and we're doing this to change our legacy. I know it's hard to not have the clothes that you want today, but guess what? I'm trying to change your legacy so you don't ever have to think about this in the future. So I said, if jeans are that important to you, I can sell the company, and I can give up this dream, and we can go back to going to work, and we can you know, rebuild our careers, and we'll live in this house forever, and you'll have to go to school and get scholarships. And she looked at me and goes, forget it, Mom. <laughs> I don't need designer jeans. <laughs> wow. Well, that's, a, that's actually a really powerful story, I think, um, that just being open and honest with your kids to some extent um, and, and yeah. showing them, you know, really what the decisions that all of you made, I think that actually um, – helps, you know, with the buy-in of the entire family. I think it makes them feel like they're trusted and they're a part of these decisions. And even, you know, even though they're hard conversations, kids can have these conversations and they can still feel good about it. I mean, my daughter never brought up buying jeans again. And in fact, years later, I, I wanted to buy her some really nice leather boots. She's got like a different shoe size and it's hard for her to find shoes and she literally refused to let me spend $75 on boots when I could afford it. Right. And um, I, I said to her, Kimmy, we're at a stage where we can afford this now and she said, it's just not worth it to me though. She said, I understand we can afford it, but I don't need those leather boots. And so I'm like, wow, this is instilled in her just a different perspective on what does she need in life even after she can afford it. So it's a pretty cool thing to see how it's transformed my kids' thinking in a positive way, you know, for their life now forward. Yeah, and I think after after Comply 365, you have a whole line of parenting books that you can go into. <laughs> <laughs> so now you're in uh, Beloit, Wisconsin, and you all have – how many employees do you have now working for you? 62. 62, wow. So you went from – just in in less than 10 years bootstrapping a company to 62 employees and um you are also i believe in line to win an economic development award from the town correct i yeah i just got a uh, word of that last week and um it's pretty cool to see you know that um when we moved to beloit wisconsin uh we only had 17 employees and um and um, this has become a little tech hub here. Um, we were one of the first to move to this little town, and now we have like nine tech companies, and we're being nominated for uh, awards in our town, and our town has totally changed. We've got all these restaurants and shops that have popped up around us, and it's just really cool to see how you know you can impact and uh, help a community. Now, do you think it's hurt or or it's been harder or it's been – easier since you're not in the valley uh you know the stereotypical move would be for you all to get to a certain point and then move out to silicon valley with the rest of the tech companies uh but you <laughs> chose to stay in the midwest uh, has that helped or um kind of given you more opportunities in different ways i think for me it's been helpful i think in the valley there's just a lot going on and um, i think there's a lot of uh, transition between companies and I think it's just a different level um, that you deal with because it's so competitive there and 
Um, what's been so incredible for me in the Midwest is um, that I really love um, that, you know, people want to maybe raise a family in the Midwest, but they want to work for a super high-tech, innovative company, but they want the Midwest lifestyle. Um, and for me, that's what I want. I, you know, I, I'm not a fan of sitting in rush hour for two hours um, because, like, every minute of every day matters so much to me that, you know, being in that kind of a pace or environment where you have all of that other stuff, I think, is just such a distraction. So it's allowed us to really focus, and um, we have incredible people. We've had people move from all over to come here. We've hired a lot of talent that's already in the Midwest. And I think it's just a real advantage because we have, like, you know, people that have been with us for a super long time, we're a family, you know, we all have like this hard Midwest work ethic and, um, you know, just like this whole culture about us is, um, you know, that we really care for our clients and we're, you know, genuine, real people that want to work hard and want to have an impact. And we're in Beloit, Wisconsin. How cool is that? So I think we stand out. And I like standing out. You know, I I I, I always uh, I think standing out on Beloit, Wisconsin, I wouldn't stand out in the valley, right? Sure. I would just be one of thousands of tech companies. But I, you know, I get to stand out here as somebody that's different. Yeah, and I think that that's also a strong message uh, that you don't have to be in the valley. Um, that yeah, a good tactic to stand out is to go somewhere uh, that has more resources to offer you from a township. I know you mentioned that you were kind of courted over to Beloit by the governor of Wisconsin at the time. Um, And they offered, I'm imagining they were able to offer you more resources than you would have been available to you had you been out in the Valley or, or any other kind of tech hub in the country. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, they're so grateful to have tech companies move to Wisconsin. The governor you know, put some tax incentives in place for us, um, and um, we're helping build an economy here and make a difference here, and that feels really good, too, that I wouldn't have that in the Valley, because I think that has been done by some pretty big brands. I think they've built mm-hmm. out those cities sure. really incredibly, um, but just to be part of this network of this community and change, you know, the even their destiny and legacy, because, I mean, the town that we're in was, you know, a lot of manufacturing, and they were looking to innovate and change into what's next in in uh, business. And um, actually, the building that I'm in was originally um, created the top printing presses of the world. So, wow. And um, it's so interesting. I met the grandkids of the founder of that company, and um, I said, I hope this would make your, you know, grandfather proud that I'm the next generation. He yeah. had the most innovative printing presses in the world. People flew all over the world to Beloit, Wisconsin to see his printing presses in the exact building I'm in. And now people fly from all over the world to see how I've digitized and using mobile devices for the future and how interesting is that? I didn't know that when I moved in. I learned that later to say, wow, I hope, you know, your grandfather's proud because I'm kind of going off of what he established here for the next generation of exactly what he did. Yeah, and there's a little bit of irony behind uh, the, I know. the building you're in. Yeah. Um, so speaking of next steps and growth, you all, the next step for you all is moving from airlines to now working with airports, correct? Yeah, it's just been a natural progression. So we're working um, in airlines, and now 
Um, all of our airline customers are using us in their airport services with all their vendors, caterers, de-icers, fuelers. And so it's just been actually a natural progression that now airports um, themselves are looking to go digital. They're looking to empower a mobile workforce. Um, and they have the exact same problems that airlines have with, you know, having, you know, these mobile users that they might not ever see, but they need to keep them up to date mm -hmm. and give them relevant content at the right time. So we're excited this year that we're, um, you know, looking forward to adding some um, airport clients to our portfolio and hope that we can help totally revolutionize the entire ecosystem of airports and connect the dots between all the vendors that we work with, the airlines and everybody, and we'll provide this incredible platform to communicate and collaborate a lot better than what they're doing today. So is this sales process kind of starting all over for you, or are you taking some of the things you learned, or what are you taking from your sales process that you learned working with the airlines to now hopefully making it easier to sell to airports? Yeah, I think everything that we have done up to date is a, so powerful because we've become the experts in how to digitize a workforce. And so, um, I mean, I get calls all the time to go in and just consult with people of what you do and what you don't do and what to avoid. And, you know, because people have ideas, but, you know, Comply has so many users that mm -hmm. we actually have the most experience on how to digitize and revolutionize your business in a smart way. Um, because, you know, people have ideas, but we can say, hey, we, we had a client that did that. It didn't work so well. Why don't we go this route and we can um, help you move faster? So I think airports have a huge advantage with us because they're going to get such an expertise um, from our experiences over the last, you know, five years um, that it's actually going to be so much easier than the airlines to begin with just because of this knowledge base that my entire um, teams have and um, just recommendations and um, tips and tricks that you think are like um, I, I think we take for granted because we've been doing mobile for so long. But when we sit and talk to clients, they're like, wow, you, you just saved us three weeks of discussion by that one comment. Um, so there's a lot of uh, tribal knowledge, I would say, um, that airports are going to definitely be able to leverage from us. And what is your approach when you go to working with a new customer? Do you, are you, do you sit down with them um, and kind of walk them through, or is it a more cut-and-paste model now? It's a very consultative approach because airports, just like airlines, are very individual. So everyone is different. They're all unique. They may all have the same regulatory compliance and auditors, but they run them all um, with different what we call standard operating procedures. And mm -hmm. so we are a very consultative company where we go in and, and give them a broad vision of where they could be in the future. But we just say, like, what's your biggest pain point today? Let's start by solving that. And as we start to do that, we'll look for the next problem and the next problem. So let's just take baby steps. And we find that consultative approach to be very powerful because one thing you have to do when you digitize is you have to change your processes. I mean, we've literally gone into clients who write out their processes on the wall and say, make it do exactly this. And I'm like, guys, that's a 27-step <laughs> process that I could do in three steps with mobile. And they're like, what? And I'm like, yes, we're going to eliminate the, you know, 24 steps that you do here because you only need those steps when you're manual. Um, and a lot of people just don't 
think like that right away, and that's what we're able to do in this consultative approach is is recommend you know better processes when you leverage mobile and streamlining your activities. So it's very consultative. Um, the airport industry is also going to be mandated to have uh, safety management systems installed. Um, we we also do safety management for the airlines, and so. Um, when this mandate comes out, we'll be able to come in as the experts because it's always scary when, you know, the FAA puts out, you know, a ruling and you have 12 months or 18 months to be in compliance. You might not have any experts on your team that understand now how to make this happen. And so a company like ours can come in in those kind of situations and, and say, you guys don't have to be scared. We can bring in the experts. We can show you how to do it and we can train somebody to take it over once we get you all set up. So what do you think going forward? Um, you're seeing technology, I mean, we've talked about the, the fast changing technology uh, over the past couple of years. Going forward, how are you seeing this kind of uh, digital workplace uh, fold more, coming more and more to everyday life? Yeah, I think it's very similar to our personal lives um, that we have totally embraced digital. I can't live without my phone because I can manage so many things on there. I can, you know, update my kid's lunch account. I mean, you can tune a guitar on it. I can check my bank account. I can shop, right? It's just like for all of us, we don't even think about all the things that we do personally on this mobile device. Um, what we're finally starting to see is that it's starting to hit our work lives. And so I think it just is natural. And it's going to empower us um, because I think everybody works a lot. Um, and they, you know, the hours that we work now are a lot. But when we can actually have it simply on our mobile device, which we're using and we're bouncing between personal and business, it'll actually make a huge difference for the workforce to be able to have that relevant information at the right time and at the right place. So I see that um, it's going to be a, you know, a tool. Now, are there dangers with, you know, the future of, you know, there's an app for everything? I think right. absolutely. I think, I, I, you know, I warn clients, like, um, you know, be very careful because just because there's an app for everything doesn't mean that's smart to make your end users have to use 20 different apps. And so I think it's a real, um, it's a balancing act that you have to make it simple for that worker to do their work, but you cannot give them 20 apps to do their work. And if people do that, the danger is that one of, one of the things that businesses do is they have siloed data centers within their organizations from the old days. Can you imagine if we had siloed data and siloed experiences within apps on top of legacy systems, on top of complex industry, we would be a bigger mess than we've ever been if we had all these different apps for everything. So, you know, it's really looking for what's your enterprise strategy long term and is there a platform where you can do, you know, 90% of your work on one single platform and then you can just augment it or integrate it to feed data into your other systems. I think that's the future because then we don't end up having all this different information and all these different locations. 
I don't think we have to, uh, or for some people, I don't think it's hard for them to realize the pains of siloed data. <laughs> I think that there are a lot of it, and particularly in, in airports and airports working with airlines, I see uh, the fact that they're not always data sharing. Uh, it causes a lot of pains uh, for passengers, the fact that the airlines aren't always talking to the airports about updated schedules and, and whatnot um, is, is a, always a pain point for providing a seamless uh, customer experience to the passengers when going through an airport. Um, so I can, that is a very difficult task uh, <laughs> that you're definitely going through. And hopefully now that you're working with airports, uh, your company can be a bridge between that, um, between the two. I'm excited about that. I am so excited about being the bridge between those two. I'm I'm excited about um, revolutionizing the way the aviation industry works by connecting the dots that have never been able to be connected yeah. now. So it is, um, you know, really back to my dream to have an impact. I think it's really about that journey of, wow, I am a passenger, right? I fly right. so much and I understand that the work that I'm doing will and is impacting client experience every day. And the more that we connect the dots, the better the customer experience is going to be. And that's, that's really what everybody is in this for, is, is delivering the best and the safest customer experience uh, for, for our passengers. Yeah. Now, real quick, in, in terms of someone who's the co-founder and CEO of a uh, company that promotes people being uh, connected via their mobile devices, always staying connected, um, is there a, an, an internal struggle that sometimes it's you can be too connected? Yeah, I think um, I think I would only put that in the context of like my personal life. I don't think mm -hmm. we're ever going to get to a place in business where we're going to be like we're too connected. Um, I, because I think with connectivity, we're going to eliminate so many emails that we get today. And I think if I could guarantee that everyone's inbox would be like deleted by 50%, everyone would feel like they have more time in their life. Um, so I think that the change is going to affect and it won't be too connected. But it is hard because now your habits, are, they're like muscle memory habits, right. right? I just grab my phone and I could be at dinner and I could all of a sudden be doing work and catch myself like with my kids staring at me that I'm actually doing work. So mm -hmm. I think that you have to make a really big conscious effort, and I struggle with it just because um, I am the CEO and founder, and my workday never ends for me. You know, right. I'm a 24-7 operation. But, you know, I've just made some pretty conscious, you know, efforts of, you know, when I'm with my kids, I put my phone down or in my back pocket or out of reach, uh, and just take those moments to just, you know, say these are moments. And 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 funny enough, uh, I I I broke my elbow recently, and um, it's because I haven't been able to do as much on technology. I've been um, spending a lot of face-to-face -face time with my team members, with my clients and staff, just because I can't type and do all right. these things. And uh, and it's kind of brought some good perspective about how much face-to-face -face time was I really giving people before and how much faster I get some things done when I actually just walk into their office and look at them face to face. So I think um, everyone should always take a pause and reevaluate like, am I too connected? Mm -hmm. um, because it's just, it's habits, that's all it is. 
And um, I don't think it's going to get better in the future. I just think people have to figure out how to control and make the best out of their life. Yeah, and I, I, I agree. I think it actually is going to get worse um, with the, I guess, uh, evolution of wearable technology um, and, yeah. and how that is, you know, the – the invention of the cell phone and email was supposed to make business easier. Um, it was supposed to give executives and, and employees kind of more get, they were able to get things done faster so that they would have more time for themselves and family. And what that actually led to was executives and uh, employees just kind of working all the time on vacation, you know, being able to connect anywhere, whether it's on vacation or nine o'clock at night. Um, and I think that that's going to be, what wearables where you see the Apple watch where, you know, you don't have to have your phone in front of you now to realize that you've got a text message or an email or a phone call or whatever. Um, so I think that you're right. It, it is going to get worse and there are going to be a lot of decisions that have to be personally made, but also from companies um, where the person, personal decisions aside, uh, if your boss expects you to respond to an email at 10 o'clock at night, that's a that's right. a company culture <laughs> that uh, is not a healthy one for longevity. Yes, I would agree, and I think it um, you know for my company's sake, I mean we have a lot of conversations as expectations. Like I expect my employees to take what we call blackout vacations, which means they're not going to be on their phone and they're not going to be on their computer. But you, when you take that vacation, you have to say. Uh, to your team, hey, I'm on a blackout vacation, which means, you know, hey, if we have an absolute emergency, get a hold of me. Otherwise, I'm not checking my emails. And then we have other vacations where we're like, oh, you know, hey, I'm just going away for the weekend. If you need to get a hold of me, you know, you can. Mm -hmm. So we set these, like, really clear guidelines because it's really healthy for people to take several blackout vacations a year. Um, and I do it. I, you know, I sat down with my management team and said that we have to be examples and do this, you know. So I literally will check my phone in the morning and I will put it in the safe as, as oh, hard wow. as that is wow. and lock it up. And then I don't check it until the night. Um, but boy, I feel so great when I come back mm -hmm. and energize. So I think it's really important that companies kind of set those expectations. Um, so that people do have that disconnect time. Yeah. Now, in terms of wearables, how are you seeing that changing, shifting back to the workplace uh, and the services that you're able, you're going to be providing or you do provide? Um, how how do you see wearables taking that into effect? And not just yeah, from a risk standpoint, but you know, I think glasses and or whatever, um, where it comes to visual. Uh, visual aids and, and whatnot. Yeah, I think um we've been we've been excited about the wearables. Uh we've we've got our app developed on several of them and we're excited about the future of like Google Glasses and all of that as well. Um really what I see though is that the wearables um they haven't really taken off yet in business. I think they really will in the next couple years because it's about the end worker. So if I've got somebody that their job is like a baggage handler, for example, mm -hmm. not going to give them a tablet or a phone and expect it not to break or be able to connect to them. So it really makes sense for them to have a wearable on uh, where I could just send them a message that says need you next delivery at gate 42 mm -hmm. and they could just hit check, got it, you know. 
So that's where it makes a lot of sense because I can just send quick little messages with a, a prompt and, you know, it does reduce a lot of back and forth on the walkie-talkies and people missing things. Um, but on the glasses, I think there's going to be some really, there already are some interesting use cases and I think it'll just, I think that'll take longer though to develop because just the digitizing of content first has to happen and um, that's a much slower process uh, for those kind of next innovations, I think, to really impact business. But uh, once we get through the digitization of all your processes, I think that's absolutely going to be the next thing to happen. And uh, we've worked up all kinds of really cool use cases and things that um, make you smarter, more efficient, um, you know, at your job. Uh, but again, there's cost and breakage and all these things sure. that everybody wonders about that, you know, I'm still yeah. like, yeah, that product kind of needs to be at a different level to be in an industry like uh, aviation um, yeah. because of the type of work we do. So it'll be an interesting, um, it's going to be an interesting kind of next, uh, I think, five to ten years on how fast technology shifts. Yeah, I think a lot of people looked at Google Glass as a failure because they kind of rolled it, they rolled it out and then they rolled it back. Um, and I think from a consumer level standpoint, you know, where you're interact with it every day, like people do their phones, I don't see that happening, um, at least not until it can get to the point where people that don't wear glasses can get, you know, can, can have access to that information. And to do that, yep. I think battery technology has to improve. I mean, the one thing about Google mm -hmm. Glass is they immediately screamed out nerd when you <laughs> walk down the street. I, mean, <laughs> I never had a pair, but I had a friend that did. And man, he thought he was the coolest guy ever until he you know, <laughs> tried to speak to other real humans. <laughs> I didn't have any idea. <laughs> what he had on his face. Um, but I think from an enterprise standpoint, you're absolutely right. I think they will serve a huge purpose uh, because then it becomes less about fashion and more about functionality. And, yes. you know, the orange vest that uh, people wear, whether you're helping, uh, you're working on an airfield or, you know, in a, uh, in a hunting area, they're not fashionable, but they're practical. <laughs> they make you stand out. So um, I know. I think from a functionality standpoint, uh, you know, those will kind of take off in the next few years. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how a company like Compliance 365 can adapt to that and, and use that to make their, to make those types of personnel um, more efficient. So I'm excited to, to see what you all come up with over the next couple of years. Yeah, I'll tell you, we're always a push in on innovation. So it's always fun to hear um, the next ideas around here, and um, who knows? I mean, maybe the tablets were just the beginning, and maybe they're we're going to be legendary for some crazy thing we've done on wearables or <laughs> Google right. Glasses or something in the future. But um, we're definitely the right company because they're all over our office, and everyone's been. I'm like, somebody get me a really great use case, and we'll yeah. see. But um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, the the change in the connectivity has to happen really first, and I think that's what everybody has realized. Um, and that's why, I mean, I think Gartner put out the stat that, you know, by 2020, 75% of all businesses will be digital. Um, so I think there's a pretty fast race uh, now that everybody uh, has to get digital because you have to compete. Um, those that don't will get left in the dust. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to kind of wrap this up because uh, we're getting close to the end of the time that I promised this would be. Um, but to kind of wrap things up, a few few, uh, few questions. 
I remember you saying that you had a goal or reading that you had a goal of being a billion dollar company. Um, are you there yet? Are you getting close? What, <laughs> what is the status <laughs> of that? No, I'm still on my journey. Um, I, I just, uh, I just want to put on, you know, a big audacious goal, you know, mm-hmm. out there that I can be a billion dollar company and hey, a girl from the Midwest with no college background can, can change the world and inspire other people that um, maybe they're in a challenge and they don't feel qualified or like they could do something. But if I can do it, anybody can do what's in front of them as well. So I'm still on the journey. I'll be on the journey for a while. Or maybe your (laughs) listeners can help me get there faster. I'm fine with that. (laughs) There you go. There you go. And to kind of transition from that, what do you see as being one of the biggest hurdles that you're facing now when you're moving, moving into airports? Uh, what is one thing that you wish airports would understand uh, that you could make that would make it easier for you or you know any company trying to help airports get digital uh, transition to that point? Yeah, I think what airports can do is is really I think one of the things that if uh, airport was real serious about this is to sit down with their leadership teams and say, we have an initiative and we are going to do this. You know, come hell or high water, we are going digital and we are all behind this um, because I will say that um, in airports and airlines, um, one of the things that you fight is just uh, that resistance to change and the political nature of resistance to change. Mm-hmm. And so if they could have those tough conversations now to say change is coming, whether you like it or not, we're all adopting. Um, I think any company that does that will be so much farther ahead of other companies because, you know, as part of this change, our company deals with having to, you know, walk people through or walk them off the ledge to say change isn't bad, you're going to survive, you know, you're going to be able to search for things and find it. But, boy, if leadership did that ahead of time to say this is our vision and this is what we're doing, boy, you would be so far ahead of so many other people because, um, just getting people to be ready to change their mindset is part of this process. And being uh, the company that has 70% of the market share with North American Airlines, I think you all are, are putting yourselves in a good position to, to help the airports make that transition. So uh, looking forward to, to hearing from you soon. Uh, and, and I think that the jump to the airports hopefully is, is uh, faster for you than the air, jump into the airline industry was. Um, but I'm, I'm definitely excited to hear more from you uh, and, and how you all progress over the next couple months and, and even years. Yeah, well, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity uh, to be on your podcast, and hopefully some people get energized and inspired today. Um, and, yeah, I'll definitely uh, update you in the future, so appreciate your time. For sure. And now if anybody wants to have more questions or wants to reach out to you, what is the best way to do that? Well, if you want to follow my journey, I actually have a blog called CarrieFrank.com, and it's really just stories about my journey. So it's just kind of a fun blog that talks about kind of this lifestyle of being an entrepreneur. And then um, you can go to Comply365.com to find out any of our contact information, uh, what our company does. Uh, All of the information is right there, and uh, you'll be able to get right in touch with us. As if you didn't have enough stuff to do, you started a blog. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I did. (laughs) That's awesome. That's awesome. And now on Twitter, you all are Comply365? Yes, we are. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. And we'll, we'll make sure we put those links uh, in the show notes as well so that anybody that has any questions can go straight to the show notes uh, and get directly connected with you. Well, Carrie, thanks so much. Perfect. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Once again, we want to thank Carrie for her time. If you want to learn more about Comply365, you can check out their website. It's just comply365.com. They're also on Twitter at Comply365. And of course, Carrie is on Twitter at CarrieFrank365. You can also check out her blog at CarrieFrank.com. If you have any questions for Carrie or any feedback about the show or just want to keep up with all things Runway VC, you can find us on Twitter at RunwayVC. I'm also on Twitter at Chris Grow. That's C-H-R-I-S-G-R-O-H. Admittedly, it's been a little slow, but we're actually working on some things to be more active on Twitter. So be sure to check us out there. Of course, if you want to share this episode with anyone, you can find the links to this episode as well as previous episodes on our website at www.runway.vc. As always, we want to thank Bruno Massone for the intro music. You can catch more of his stuff at brunomassone.com. And we want to thank Cutchins & Grow, the airport planning firm that pays me on a regular basis so I can afford food and be able to work on Runway VC as a labor of love. But seriously, if you work for an airport and need some help with capital planning, operational planning, or really any kind of planning, uh, check out their website at www.cutchins-grow.com. That's K-U-T-C-H-I-N-S hyphen G-R-O-H dot com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you on the next one.